Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. The passage that I'm, I'm going to be speaking from today uh, is one that's very, very important to me and has been for a long time, and I, I really hope I can impart some of that uh, to you. And it comes from uh, the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Philippi, not to the Philippines like I thought it was when I was eight. It reads like this. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So as you know, we are in our three-story series here at Quest. Uh, We are sharing uh, three things. His story, or a story of a character in the Bible. Uh, Our story, and how it was affected by that biblical story. And finally, their story, which is the application step, how we use this biblical text and the story of a friend to help shape our lives and the lives of those around us. And I think one of the most important parts of story itself is the context in which it lays. Imagine knowing nothing about American history in the 1800s and then reading a Mark Twain novel. It would throw a cultural curveball at you. And like we know, the book of Philippians is a letter book written by the Apostle Paul. Now, the interesting thing about this particular letter is that it has been deemed by many scholars to be his letter of joy. The reason this is so intriguing is that Paul was in prison when he wrote it. Now, the other piece of context here falls with verse 13. I could do all things through him who gives me strength. We have often seen this verse standing alone on posters, and I think even on Evander Holyfield's warm-up uniform. It is inspiring on its own. But putting it back into the context of the previous two verses helps it bring on a clearer meaning. And when we do that, we find today's focus, and that is contentment. Now, by dictionary definition, contentment simply means a state of happiness or satisfaction. And Paul draws some pretty clear parameters on his state of contentment. It boils down to three main points, because let's face it, all good sermons use three main points, right? First thing he does is says no to martyrdom or hidden meaning. So you know that story, you know that piece of the story, you know that passive aggressiveness, you've had that conversation with somebody or maybe you've been that person that you've been hoping for something, waiting for something and finally it comes around and you're just like, thanks, not like it could have gotten here any sooner, you know what I mean? One of those things or maybe you have a good in-law story but these things get put up online so I'm not going to be saying any of mine. In verse 10, uh, he thanked the church of Philippi for sending him a gift of money. And if you keep reading in verse 11, he clearly prefaces the rest of the passage with saying, hey, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I'm not trying to have a double meaning. And what I think he's also emphasizing is that we have to be able to let go of those things, let go of that passive-aggressive nature, that second meaning, that double meaning, that martyrdom, to be able to fully experience contentment. There was no heavy sigh when Paul was like, thanks for sending money. Not like you could have sent it sooner. Number two, he establishes context. Paul says right to them, I know what it is to have a lot and a little. And regardless of circumstances, it was through relationship. His relationship with Christ specifically that gave him contentment. It really sounds like wedding vows for better or for worse. In sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer. This establishes his frame of reference. Number three, he establishes his source of contentment. And this comes primarily through verse 13. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Now this shows that contentment isn't passive. It is active. I can do 
all things. Contentment isn't just a breath between activities, conflict, or circumstance. And uh, Ross and I were actually talking about this um, um, yesterday. We were going over some final notes uh, for today's message. And and, uh, one thing that we agreed on is is a lot of us kind of think of contentment as sitting back in the easy chair, you know, having that breath between things in life, uh, not having an activity coming up, not having a conflict that we're trying to resolve. But the big thing to notice about Paul's story is that his source of contentment isn't earthly. He doesn't write to the Philippians saying, eh, I've been keeping busy here uh, writing letters and drawing pictures in the dirt. He points immediately to God. Keep those things in mind while I tell you my story. And I want to open the same way that Paul did in verse 11. Uh, I am not saying this because I want attention or because I want you to feel bad for me, uh, etc., I simply want to give you my story. And I want to tell you my story because I believe very strongly in the platform of this series and, frankly, the missional vision of Quest. Relationships are the mission. And a pivotal part of being in relationship is knowing each other. Uh, Some people have called me an old soul. Although I live in the pop culture of my generation, I do like Motown. My car is older than me, by choice. And people very rarely guess my age correctly. Uh, I am 24, by the way. The hair product covers up the premature and gray. Uh, I put some of this old soul credit on my mom and dad. Uh, My mom was born in 1948 and my father in 45. Uh, They had my oldest brother when my mom was still in her teens and and married during the pregnancy. Uh, Most of my peers had parents born in the 60s. So when I had that project in first grade where you have to go home and ask your mom uh, who was the president and how much did a loaf of bread cost when she was born, I was always the oddball. Uh, My friends would always be like, Lyndon Johnson was the president and a loaf of bread cost 21 cents. And on my turn, it was more like uh, Julius Caesar and a handful of beads. Uh, um, Fair warning, this, this next part goes pretty fast. Uh, I'm the youngest of six children. Uh, My oldest brother was born in 66, myself in 88. Three brothers, two sisters. The younger of my two sisters, Mandy, died as a child due to a heart condition before my brother Kevin and I were born. She was almost two years old. And that's what sets the tone, being birthed into conflict. And I remember as a kid when I first kind of wrapped my mind around this concept of having a sibling that died before I knew them, I I wrestled with the idea that my brother Kevin and I only existed to make up for the loss of Mandy. You know, what if my parents had secretly hoped one of us to be a girl to help fill that void? And what I'm sure didn't help matters is I was born with club feet that required surgery and cast for me to walk correctly. my, My parents divorced in 1993, right after I turned five. And I remember my dad leaving and everything. I I literally remember walking into the kitchen from the living room. And my dad had his back toward the front door. My mom and my two brothers, my only siblings who hadn't gone out on their own yet, and uh, being asked, who do you want to go with? And I remember actually feeling bad for my dad because nobody was standing with him. Uh, But my brother Kevin waved me over to him and my mom, and the rest is history. And for a while in my childhood, I bought into this idea that I should really be upset about that. And in a sense, I was. Now, I'm not justifying uh, principles uh, or views of divorce, but looking at it now, I guess I just understand it more. My parents' marriage started turbulent and started meeting its demise after losing a child. Couple that with them never really having a relationship with Christ, and you start getting a clearer picture, the context. Not excuses, not a cure for the pain, just clarification. My mother had custody of me, and my brother Kevin, who's three years older than me, 
Um, my brother Steve, who was 22 at the time of my parents' divorce, stayed home uh, to help mom raise Kevin and I. In 1995, my mother died of breast cancer. I was seven. Uh, my brother Kevin was 10, and my mom was only 47. And uh, this part was hard to script. This part was kind of hard to write out. Um, but it was at that moment, it was, it was the night my, my mother had passed away, I, I physically felt a shift. You know, you know what it's like to have the absence of, of someone in your life. When someone leaves a void, whether that's a, a parent or another loved one, you know what it's like when all of a sudden they're not there anymore. And I really feel at that time that there was a physical presence that came into me. I, I, I could identify it now as the Holy Spirit coming to me and kind of filling that void. You know, filling that void of, uh, of my mom no longer being there. And for me to be able to have uh, that sonship with them and, and, and with him. And that's, that's what we're going to be talking about more today. Not just contentment, but contentment through that sonship of knowing that somebody's there, of knowing that he's guiding you, of knowing that you feel that presence in your life. And uh, when my mom passed, though, I realized that people started treating me differently. I was, I was in the, the second grade, and uh, I, this is not a cliche. Uh, I literally was the kid who was picked last uh, for every team. I was very scrawny. I was very short. I was not athletic. Um, I mean, hence, I grew up and became a musician of sorts, right? So I, I, the athlete, athletics were not my thing. And I remember coming back to school after a couple of weeks of being home, and uh, all of a sudden, I wasn't picked last anymore. All of a sudden, people started to not pelt me with the dodgeball right away. There was a hesitation, you know, and they'd pull back. And, uh, and I realized then that people were going to treat me differently because of my story. And I decided then at seven years old that I didn't want to lead off with my story anymore. If somebody were going to, you know, if I was going to get into a relationship with somebody, if somebody was really a friend or a teacher, then yes, I would totally, you know, eventually tell them that story. But I didn't want that to be what people judged me on the first time around. I didn't want to crutch in either direction. I didn't want people to think more of me or less of me because I had gone through whatever life circumstances that I had been through. And uh, also, I didn't want to just lead off with a sob story. And I remember later on, and, and I'll touch into this later, but later on in my life, there were people who would go after they figured out about what my uh, childhood was like. They're like, how come you're not more messed up? You know, how come you're not going around, you know, being the kid in the after school special that's, uh, you know, all crazy because his parents divorced, you know, and graffiti on walls and, you know, acting out irrationally, if you would. And not saying that I didn't have scars, not saying that I didn't have things that I was carrying around with me, but... Um, at the time, I couldn't verbalize it. I couldn't verbalize that I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit at that time. It just uh, it wasn't there for me yet. So going back. After my mom passed, my sister and her husband gave cu- gained custody of my brother Kevin and I. They were 27 when we landed on their doorstep with a one-year-old baby. They raised us all the way through high school and ended up having six children of their own. I still affectionately refer to them as my parents, and their children are more like siblings to me. I am occasionally called Brunkle Dusty. <laughs> I saw my dad every other weekend for most of my childhood, but we drifted throughout my teen years. Um, he died of lung cancer when I was 17 in 2005. He was 60 years old. And it was within that year that I was preparing to graduate high school, and I, looked, I was looking at colleges, and I was filling out the financial forms and all of that riveting excitement. And I remember on the front page of one of the forms down at the bottom, it read, if both of your parents were deceased before you were 18, or if you are considered a ward of the state, do not fill out the remainder of the packet. 
or something along those lines. And essentially, I had only filled out some detailed contact info, and boom, dead parents, no more info needed. And although I was obviously aware of my unique childhood, I never saw it on paper. I never had to check a box saying mom and dad were dead. It was eerie, really. Um, my brother Kevin and I have a unique relationship. He is my only sibling who operates as a sibling in my life. Uh, all the others whom I love dearly either served as a parental figure or were just way out of the house uh, before I arrived. Kevin is what I like to call the teen movie brand of older brother. Uh, he got into more trouble than me, or at least caught more than me. And he was a good mechanic. He played high school football for a couple of years and occasionally referred to me as Rugrat. Um, but I knew that he loved me. Even if it was unspoken, most of the time we had seen an awful lot of life together. Kevin was diagnosed with uh, acute lymphatic leukemia in late 2006, my freshman year of college. And he beat the leukemia about four years ago. That was a standstill time in my life. I mean, a lot happened in those few years for me in relationships and jobs and schooling and even making some uh, uh, steps and in, in, uh, moving into vocational ministry as a career. But it was all kind of haunted by Kevin being sick. It was one of those things where a few days would go by and I would be fine. And then I'd be crying in the car because I kept thinking, could I really stand losing mom, dad and Kevin? I'd be sitting at class, not able to focus, feeling guilty that he was sitting in a hospital room. So I would leave middle of a lecture, bags packed out the door, headed to the hospital. Even if he was unconscious, I would, I would just sit there uh, for a few hours watching him, praying and thinking about how I would respond to any number of scenarios, including what if I get sick too? Kevin's leukemia uh, relapsed this Thanksgiving. Uh, he's still currently in treatment, and I know many of you have been praying for him, and I, I thank you uh, greatly for that. So like I said, people ask, why are you not screwed up? Why are you not going crazy? You know, why are you not acting out like we've seen other people act out by going through those life conflicts, by going through those hardships. And uh, it was because I had never seen it verbalized that I wasn't able to verbalize it myself. Around the time I was 19, I was getting into this idea of, okay, I started in music education in college, and I was like, this is empty. You know, I realized that music didn't really mean much if it wasn't coupled uh, with worship. And I struggled with that. I wrestled with that. Because as a kid, I hated worship music. I did not like worship music at all. I thought it was cheesy. I thought it was cliche. And God was now tugging at my heart. He's like, I've given you this gifting. I've given you this calling. And he was pulling me into vocational ministry. And at that time, I was reading in the Bible a lot. I was reading a lot more, studying a lot more. And I got to that passage in Philippians. And I saw it finally verbalized that. Chapter 4, verse 11 through 13. I had seen verse 13 so many times. I had seen, I could do all things through him who gives me strength. But I always kind of put it up there with one of those verses that's always on motivational posters. You know, I thought it was standalone. But you pull it back and you see, I have found the secret to being content in any and every situation. Right? And that's what I realized it was. It was that Holy Spirit contentment, that contentment of not being alone, that contentment of peace that passes understanding. When you sing that hymn, when you sing that song, when you hear those words, that's what it is. It's, It's the Holy Spirit having that presence in your life. So what now? I unload on to you the highlights of some of the greatest losses and pains in my life. Where do we go from here? Well, here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to stop and say, wow, we should be grateful for every day we have. I also don't want you to hone in on your life experiences of pain and loss and size them up to mine. That's not the point. Our stories as believers should not be just something we contrast other stories off of. It's not a game of comparison, whether we do it nobly or in poor character. 
The point is, the story doesn't stop there. And frankly, it isn't even the whole story. Here's how I want you to frame the rest of our time here today, and hopefully uh, how you reflect on your own story. We move into your story. Pain and loss cannot be the main character in your story. And when I say you, I mean us, all of us. And if you hear nothing else today, I want you to hear that. Pain and loss cannot be the main character in your story. If you let the negative and the darkness be primary in your life, it will become your identity. It will steal your joy. It will rob you of contentment in Christ Jesus. We must find our identities in being children of God. My friends, we live in a broken world. We live in a world infected with sin and brokenness. My pain, your pain, Paul's pain is all a side effect of a broken world. I'm sure many of you have heard of the biblical story arch. It's essentially uh, the Bible book jacket blurb, as I like to call it. And it goes like this. First, we have creation. Number one, highlighted in Genesis. God creates everything made to be perfect for his enjoyment. Then we have number two, the fall, highlighted in the Old Testament. So sin enters the world, the fall of man, Adam and Eve and the fruit. Then we have number three, and remember this one, number three. This is where we are. In shorthand, this is God giving us, uh, I'm sorry, redemption, rather. It's in the new, uh, highlighted in the New Testament. This is God giving us the gift of Christ, partnering us here on earth with the Holy Spirit, saving us from our sins, offering us salvation, equipping us to live with him as the focal point. We live in kind of a, a tandem of fall and redemption. Number four, we have restoration. Now, this step gets overlooked a lot because it's highlighted in Revelations. Revelation. Shun. Every once in a while you'll say Revelations. There's no S on the end, just Revelation. This is more for you uh, Revelation readers, but essentially God restores us to live with him in eternity. A new heaven, a new earth, and things that I will save for Ross to speak about in another message. I like to think of this restoration step as a promise, a promise that God will make all things new. All of our emotive expectations are here. This is where we want to go. This is where we as believers set, set our sights on being, living, restored, and uh, in union with God. And I think, again, we need to remember we live in three not four. You're going to hear me say that quite a bit. And I think we could all agree that we live in a fallen world and, and a broken world. It's the redemptive part that we sometimes struggle to identify. I know that through scripture and personal struggle and temptation that the hurdle in that identification happens when we give too much power to our excuses. The things we blame for our suffering and the suffering of the world. Some pop- popular catch-alls for blame uh, of things like this would be uh, a society that breeds victims. A media system that heavily emphasizes shock value and negativity. A government slipping away from its biblical heritage. I urge you, do not let these be your excuses. Exist outside of them. The moment that you let those things rule you is the moment you take power away from the gospel in your life. If you make them the or one of the reasons your life stinks or why the world is going to hell in a handbasket, you you give them the power to save your life for the world. You assign them the ability to bring you contentment. By saying, if only the news wasn't so negative, you infer that if the news were positive, somehow we would be one step closer to a happier society. If you say our lives would be so much better if these candidates were in office, you have sold yourself cheap on what it really takes to have a better life and repeat that process for society and for money and so on. 
These are only surface issues. Self-proclaimed victims, media, broken government, religion, Wall Street, churches, schools, homes, bars, soup kitchens, country clubs, sacred music, secular music, ghettos, armies, red states, blue states, and families all have one thing in common, and that is sinful, broken people. Those things themselves don't make your life hard. Sin makes your life hard. Those things are just the car the devil is driving to get at you. These hot-button topics in your life only exist because sin exists. And frankly, being a believer doesn't make your life easier. It just helps you make more sense of it. It gives you context. It gives you the OIC in your life. It lets you stand in the pouring rain, well aware of how wet you're getting, and lets you go, eh, I'll dry off later. It allows you to look at all the things that hurt you or give you stress and for you to identify why they do those things, what equips them to bring you pain, and that is sin. And then the big question is why? We've all heard that question. Why would God let something like this happen? In society right now, it's topics like the school shooting in Connecticut or Hurricane Sandy. In my life, it could be a number of those things that I shared with you. Why, would, why did my mom die? Moms of seven-year-olds don't die. Why is my brother sick again? Fill in the blank for your own life. But I will give you the rip-off, the band-aid answer to the question. We're broken. We live in three, which is redemption, not four, the restoration. Our bodies are broken. Our world is broken. And believing in God does not take the pain away. It only helps us make sense of it. And when we're in the thick of it, sometimes it takes hindsight for us to make sense of it. And I will repeat, this does not always make the pain go away. But in my experience, it makes it feel less lonely. It makes me feel less picked on. And through identifying sin and brokenness as the key issues of our hurt, loss, and pain, we can now look at redemption more deeply. Like in most things, I believe C.S. Lewis says it best. If tribulation is a necessary element in redemption, we must anticipate that it will never cease till God sees the world to be either redeemed or no further redeemable. In order to look at life under the idea of redemption, we must see the either and the or. I could be angry at God for my life circumstances. I I could be angry with God for my mom dying. Or I could thank him for providing me with a loving family despite her loss. I could be angry with God for my mom and dad divorcing. Or I could thank him that I've seen the damage divorce can do to further strengthen my marriage. I could be angry with God for my dad dying. Or I can thank God that he gave me an earthly dad and my brother-in-law and a deeper relationship with God himself as my heavenly father. This whole thing is God redeeming constantly. I could be angry with God for my brother being sick again, or I could thank God for the strength he gives Kevin daily to fight leukemia for a second time. What are your either-ors? Take a few seconds to jot them down. If you have a pen, if you have something to write on the back, a bulletin, scrap piece of paper... I'm going to give you like 10 seconds to think about that. What are your either roars? What are the things that sometimes we feel smited by God by when really we should be looking at the redemptive quality and peace that he's giving to our lives? Now, as you're doing this, let me warn you, this does not take away from the pain per se. It doesn't stop the rain. It just gives you perspective. It keeps you thankful to God. It doesn't keep tragedy from rocking your world, but it keeps you mindful that God can bring good out of every situation. This is redemption. In spite of the world, God. 
Not a pretty sentence in a grammatical sense, but it is true. Much like Moses asking God, who do I say sent me? And God answering him by saying, I am, in spite of the world, God. In spite of sin punishable by death, God intervened, giving us the gift of Christ. In spite of prison, Paul was still able to find contentment in God through Christ. In spite of loss and death and depression and anxiety and a really weird family tree, here I stand before you blessed with a family who chose to take me in as a child. And in that family, I came to know Christ. I am blessed with a marriage to my best friend, a job and vocations that are hard to come by, sharing the greatest news ever told with you today. And once we understand redemption, we can then better understand contentment. And again, not just contentment, but contentment through sonship. Now, Paul mentioned back in our passage from Philippians that he had learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And this, again, is where mine and Paul's story intertwine. The the contentment, the presence, the active feeling that you are not by yourself. That shift I felt when my mother passed and something else came into her place. You can still feel lonely, but you know you're not truly alone. Let's break this into two chunks. First thing he says is that it's learned. The key word is learned. Paul did not say that he realized or woke up to contentment. He, he learned it. And learning implies process. Learning implies potential failure before getting it right, like riding a bike, memorizing a math formula, doing your taxes, baking a cake. Also, how do you think he learned it? Look at verse 12. He had to experience need. He had to experience plenty. And without that, how do you know what contentment is? You need that contrast. It is unrealistic to experience true contentment when all is well all the time. Do not be surprised if you are not immediately or consistently successful at finding contentment in God through Christ. There is process. There is our susceptibility to failure. Number two, redemption is not limited to circumstance. Just like Paul writes, whatever the circumstances. Paul did not say that he learned to be content only when his needs were met or when he was safely tucked into a comfortable routine. Remember, the man was in prison when he wrote this. And not a good prison. (laughs) Probably a nasty prison. And if you read other translations, you will find that the passage says Paul learned to cope with plenty. I like that phrase, cope with plenty. You have to learn how to handle having plenty, just like you have to learn how to handle having nothing. And that's what rallies us to our 18th hole here. Contentment is not self-sustained. Only contentment through sonship is lasting. And remember, contentment is not passive. It is active. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. So back to that. So to cope with plenty. I have plenty in my life that can bring me contentment. We all do, really. We, we seek out those things. And I'm not trying to assess any of those things as being evil or wrong. They just don't last like sonship lasts. The surface things are easy to identify. Uh, for me personally, things like uh, my Mustang. I don't need it, but by golly, I've always wanted one, and my wife loves me enough to let me have it. And I got to drive it yesterday in January in Ohio. It was awesome. Also, my vinyl collection. I love collecting records. I have everything from Elvis and Bob Dylan to the Supremes and Sticks. Again, I don't need it, but when I get the occasional lazy afternoon, it's a fun hobby. Or my music. In some ways, I've made a living off of it, though modest, still a living. I let it be the primary shaper of my identity for a long time, all the while ignoring that God had given me that gift in the first place. So if those are the easy things, the noble things that bring us contentment are the tricky ones. 
although they are noble, they are still not sonship. Things like your career. Maybe you worked your tail off to have the job that you're in. Maybe you had to overcome insane odds to get there. But what happens when you can't do your job anymore? What about your kids? The mud gets thicker. Jesus loves kids. He uses them to illustrate key points of following him. He entrusted them to your care. But does your salvation come from being a parent? Your spouse. This is the hardest one for me. The Bible emphasizes marriage to the point of telling husbands and wives how to treat each other and even to call the church the bride of Christ. But does God call us to honor him first or our spouse first? And as noble as these things are, the feeling of contentment they bring is not lasting. If you put all of your contentment eggs in those baskets, I promise that you will be at some point disappointed. Money will disappoint you. Hobbies will disappoint you. Family of all varieties will disappoint you. Church, big C church, quest will disappoint you. Some of you may say, well, can't I be disappointed by God? I'm sure you could have that feeling at one point or another. But if you really believe God is all-knowing and sovereign, and you understand that you will not fully understand everything about him, that feeling of disappointment, as real as it feels, becomes very, very hard to validate. And here's the last thing I want to share with you, and that is to share your story. So here it is, the close. The what do we do now? Frankly, I want all of us to share our story. It's the most beautiful and unique piece of evangelical material we have been given because we are all unique individuals. Nobody else shares our exact same story. And if you feel reluctant to share your story, let me once again share a C.S. Lewis quote with you. For you will certainly carry out God's purpose however you act, but it makes a difference to you whether you serve like Judas or like John. The first part is key. We will carry out God's purpose however we act. We don't even have to be conscious of it all the time. But just like I told you, I viewed my story more like storage, uh, baggage. I didn't want to lead off with it. I didn't want people to assess me on those things from the get-go. But after finding contentment through sonship, after seeing God verbalize for me in Paul's writing in Philippians what I was feeling all of my life, the why aren't you more messed up? I'm able to see my story for what it is. Something that God will not let go in vain. No pain, no fear, and frankly, no triumph. God can and will use those things in your story to tell his story. He can and he will. The question is, are you going to be passive about it or active about it? And maybe you're still figuring faith out. You're, you're figuring out how your relationship with God works. Maybe you feel with God what I felt with others. You, you don't want your current story to be what you come to him with. Here's my encouragement to you. Do not try to change or hide your story, your sin, your your struggles from God before the relationship. Enter the relationship first. Everything else will follow suit. Let me pray for us. Father God, we, uh, although we all come to you with unique stories, Father, with unique souls, with unique purposes and talents, Lord, we all come to you with, uh, our share of pain to our uncertainty, our uncertainty about where we stop and where you begin to resolve conflict in our lives, to resolve pain in our lives, to resolve struggling in our lives. And Father, sometimes we're hesitant to come to you while still wearing those things. They, they still you know, reek of our uh, tried and, and failed good intentions. Lord, we ask that 
today we're able to breathe in the Holy Spirit, that we're able to feel your presence so deeply that all those behaviors, that all those actions, even sins and habits we're struggling with, we're able to break free from because relationship with you is primary. All those other things will follow suit. Give us the strength and the courage we need to share our story to the world. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.